never too late, right, to sneak in a summer Friday edition of the broadcast. Brian Seltzer saying hello. Hope everything is going well in our first week of relatively quiet 76ers and NBA activity on the heels of the team's return from Summer League. Coming up on this episode of the podcast, a guy who I ran into out in Summer League talking about the state of the 76ers. He's the senior NBA writer from Bleach Report's Howard Beck. That conversation coming up in a moment. But first, reminders that to subscribe to the podcast, you can go to iTunes, you can go to Google Play, you can go to Stitcher or SoundCloud, type in Sixers Podcast Network, and that should take you to our feed. We would love to have you as a subscriber if you are not yet one already. So why reach out to Howard Beck, other than the fact that he is an expert, an ace on all things NBA, got his finger on the pulse of the league. The 76ers had a media availability with managing partner Josh Harris and head coach Brett Brown during the second week of Summer League. Howard was there. I was as well. We ended up sitting next to each other, and I figured that uh, now that we're in kind of a, a period of relative calm and quiet in the offseason, relative of course, always the chance that something could happen here or there. Um, why not call up Howard and ask him about all things 76ers, his impressions of last year and this off season? So that's what we're doing here on this episode of the podcast. Howard, thanks so much for taking a few moments. Definitely want to dive directly in deep to the 76ers in a few moments. But to begin, it's been a very busy week in the NBA. Um, in terms of outside 76ers land, in particular in the Eastern Conference. So why don't we start our conversation by talking indirectly about some things that might affect the 76ers. Kawhi Leonard to the Toronto Raptors from the San Antonio Spurs. How does, in your mind, that affect the lay of the land in the East? Yeah, it was you know fascinating because I think if we were to you know uh, you know take ourselves back in time you know three four weeks or a couple months no one would have predicted an outcome that had Kawhi Leonard going to the Toronto Raptors. Um, that's not something that was really on anyone's radar. And, you know, maybe it should have been all along. If you were assessing which teams out there really need to make a bold move, the Raptors were certainly right up there. And especially when you consider that, you know, the, the state of the East what, you know is in flux and you know, Boston and Philly were clearly emerging as the favorites for the foreseeable future. And if you're the Raptors, even though you've, you know, won more games than any other Eastern Conference team for the last three, four years, postseason has not been kind. They needed to do something different. So um, I, I, I like it for Toronto. It is, it is a huge risk. It's a risk on at, at least, you know, three levels. You know, you don't know what Kawhi's health is. You don't know what his state of mind is, given his fallout with the Spurs. And you don't know if he wants to stay. And all indications are that he doesn't want to. But, you know, uh, for, for what it's worth, that was the, the theme around Paul George a year ago at this time. And uh, that worked out well for the Thunder. And, uh, you know, I guess for the Raptors, it's a worthwhile roll of the dice because if he doesn't decide to stay, well, then you hit the reset button next summer and, and you've got, you know, more flexibility with DeRozan off the books. But uh, I, I do think that if you if Kawhi is healthy – in the right state of mind and fully engaged with that lineup with Lowry and, and all those young pieces, they're going to be right in the mix there with, with Philly and Boston, maybe not the same overall talent, but uh, you know, Kawhi Leonard could be a, a massive difference maker for them. And for the Spurs, you know, listen, it's, they did what they, they did what they could. Uh, could they have done better? I'm not sure if they could have, 
you know, given given the market was going to always be a little bit soft for a guy who is coming off of a major injury and is on a one-year deal. The whole will Kawhi stay, will he end up leaving factor, I got to be honest, the one thing that I learned about starting to cover the NBA, Toronto, I would say at the worst, might be a top three city in the league. I feel like that is such a great place that maybe you only understand once you get there and there's this perception like, oh, it's it's not a great spot. I mean, Toronto, my opinion, a great city. No, a fantastic city, actually. And, uh, you know, I, I think most people recognize that now. Uh, you know, um, certainly uh, all of us in media do. I mean, any, any of us who have ever visited there, you know, love Toronto. Players, it's interesting, people won't remember this, uh, but when Toronto was still in its first 10 or so years in, in, as an NBA franchise or as an NBA city, players really didn't want to go there. And they didn't want to go to Vancouver when Vancouver was in the league because it was seen as, oh, it's another country, it's Canada and, and all these things. And it was, it was a really weird stigma attached to both of those cities, and they're both incredible cities. And I feel like that's faded um, uh, just um, significantly. Uh, you don't hear, like, guys may not want to go there for the weather or whatever, but you don't hear about it as being an, an issue of being in another country anymore. Like, that part of it doesn't seem to be, with, with the, today's NBA player does not seem to be a massive obstacle. And look, there there are some some hitches. You know, if, if your family, if you leave your family back in the States and, you know, you've got, you know, maybe, you know, travel concerns because of customs uh, or, uh, you know, do I want to move my family to, you know, another country and their school system. Whatever. I mean, it does present some different challenges for players potentially, but those challenges were exaggerated to a, a crazy degree in the, the first several years of, of Toronto's, uh, you know, the, of the Raptors existence. And, um, and, and you don't hear about it anymore. So that's, that's a positive thing uh, that, that most guys recognize this is a good place to go. And you know what? Credit to Masai Ujiri, uh, in large part, for changing perception. And credit to Brian Colangelo, prior to him, for helping change those perceptions. Um, they both have been great advocates uh, for that city. And credit the, the, the Lowry-DeRozan you know, core, because uh, you know, this winning um, era, this, 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 is, you know, this last five, four or five years, their best era as a franchise, I think, has you know, just given a different luster to that franchise, you know, for players who may want to play there. No question tapping into a pretty terrific fan base as well. So where do the 76ers now stand on the heels of all this? It sounds like you still have them as a, a top three team in the Eastern Conference regardless. Yeah, I mean, uh, look, I, I'm not sure anything was going to change that. Uh, the, the East is kind of weird right now. You know, you've got all these teams that – have been good but not great and that are just kind of, you know, can't get out of their own way or are stuck. So, you know, I'm talking about like, you know, Miami is maxed out with what they have right now. They're just never going to be a great team with, with this group. And then they're kind of locked into it because of payroll and the bucks just can't figure out who to, to pair with Giannis or, or can't get the, the right guy to pair with Giannis. And, you know, they just parted with Jabari Parker, let him walk away for nothing. Washington, I mean, you know, the Wizards are, they, they for a while it was, they were the annual, you know, dark horse favorite. And now I think we're all just ready to, to, to write them off entirely. And, you know, I feel like they're taking steps backwards when you're, when you're going uh, with Dwight Howard um, in your lineup. So, uh, you know, all the teams that you, that you would be waiting for to make a big move upward just, just can't, they're, 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 you know they're they're stuck, and the Pacers are the one interesting one. Like the Pacers, uh, I think quietly had 
one of the better off seasons. You know, I mean, you, you know, no one's going to compare. You know, it's it's not like getting Kawhi Leonard. It's not like getting LeBron James. Um, but the Pacers had you know made some really nice, just you know, second tier or even third tier, I guess, pickups. Um, in some cases, you know, but getting Tyreek Evans and you know McDermott. Uh, Kylo Quinn, uh, adding to a team that was already kind of young and rising. Uh, I think the Pacers could break the top four in the East with the Cavs falling out. But that said, I, I think this still comes down to a three-way race between the, the Celtics, Raptors, and Sixers. And, you know, the, the thing for the Sixers is all their all their growth has to come, their improvement has to come internally at this point. It's, it's Embiid taking next steps and Ben Simmons taking next steps. Uh, it's It's obviously not going to be about anybody that they've added because they weren't able to really add the impact player that they that they hoped to this summer but you know while it may be disappointing for fans uh, you know I, I think they're fine like this was this it was you know make make those big bold moves if you can it's not always that easy and if you can't make them look you, you've, you've still got plenty of upside just with the fact that your two franchise cornerstones are are, are young and on their way up this may be a waste of a question to ask, but in terms of perception around the league, in terms of the overall psyche of the organization, how important do you think it was for the 76ers simply to have a strong season last year? I mean, the 52 wins, that was big. A first-round playoff series win, that was big too. But just to show and prove that there was momentum moving forward, how important do you think that was to the whole direction of all this? I mean, it definitely was. You know, I think... You know, look, people fell into two categories throughout, you know, the, the years that were that were dubbed the process, which was either you were, you know, really you know, skeptical of the whole thing or the other camp, which I was in, which was you can see the, the, the method behind the madness or the, the method to the madness. You could see the, the, the results that were potentially coming. You could see the upside. And look, I, a lot of us thought that there would be a, a breakthrough season last year, but not to the level of, you know, 52 wins and a second-round playoff appearance. Um, you know, I, I wasn't even ready to call them a playoff team a year ago uh, in the offseason, even though I thought that they were on their way up. And, and as positive as I was about everything else, I just, you know, I felt like there was too much uncertainty. You know, we, we hadn't seen anything from them. And, and to, to make that kind of leap in one season was incredible. I mean, we, we rarely see that. Um, and so to do that, you know, it, it then convinced everybody, no matter what camp you were in, no matter how you viewed the process, um, no matter how you viewed those players, it, it, it convinced everyone that this team has an incredibly bright future. That then um, look, there was there was skepticism out there about you know uh, Brett Brown and his, and his staff too. You know, hey, are, are these guys the right guy? Well, you know, given given talent and health, they showed exactly what they could do. Um, so, you know, credit to everybody, uh, there for, for, uh, you know, taking this thing and, you know, uh, keeping everybody in a, in a positive frame of mind throughout what was, what were some very difficult years and, and, uh, and creating a culture that, which is, which is such a funny thing. Everybody said, oh, you're poisoning the culture by, by losing all these years in a row and, you know, you'll never get out of it. And this, this will drag you down for years to, to come. And it was the opposite. They were, Brett Brown was, was building a culture of, uh, of, of guys, you know, working hard and, uh, establishing the, the style of play and a commitment to each other. And it all, you know, came to fruition last season. So I, I think, Everybody, players, agents, coaches, they're, they're all having to view the franchise much differently now than they were before that. 
And here we are, fast forward five years later, and this is one of the main reasons why I wanted to have you on. We're sitting at a round table. I think you and I, if I'm remembering right, we're seated right next to each other the first week of Summer League in Las Vegas, and there's Brett Brown in the acting role of head of basketball operations for the 76ers, seated right next to managing partner Josh Harris in a state of the 76ers-esque, I guess, type of thing, media roundtable um, during Summer League. What were your takeaways from that session? It went about 45 minutes, covered a lot of different things. Um. I'm, I'm trying to trying to remember what really stood out that day. Um, it's been a couple of weeks. <laughs> I'm sure you um, saw a lot of basketball and heard a lot of basketball. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, just that there was, you know, of course, at that time, um, you know, we still didn't know where the, the, the Kawhi Leonard situation would end up. Um, I, I feel like the, the main thing was just the, the confidence with the with both guys that you know that wherever things ended up um they were in a great position which they are um and i think at that time they they had already made the trade for wilson chandler who which i i thought was a phenomenal opportunistic trade i think he fits perfectly with what they are um and what they needed um that that you know this team is is you know at the top levels has a, a confidence about um you know where they are and 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 where they're going um and that you know the absence of a general manager and and the uh you know or of a permanent general manager and and the you know controversy that that you know surrounds that position or surrounded that position hasn't hurt them um you know they've they've been able to uh to endure and you know look they they said it that day they were in no rush um or they were at least going to take their time when it comes to to finding a new head of basketball operations and, you know, I, I think they could afford to because their most important pieces were already in place. And, you know, maybe they already knew at that time that the trade, you know, proposals for Kawhi were never going to go anywhere because, you know, they're, you know, I think legitimately or, or justifiably, they had to be cautious, you know, um, because of all the things we've already talked about with Kawhi. Probably one of the biggest signings. You could probably say the biggest signing the 76ers have made, J.J. Redick. Um, obviously, his track record speaks for himself. But when you look at the constitution and makeup of the 76ers roster, just how important is the aspect of having shooting right now? Well, I mean, it's huge for a couple of reasons. You know, obviously, look, it's it's where the game is today. Most teams that are have you know have any level of success. Um, are, are doing it with a ton of three-point shooting. You need it not only be to, to keep up with your opponent who's going to shoot a lot of threes and make a lot of threes, and if you're shooting twos and they're making threes, you're going to fall behind very quickly. Uh, simple math uh, issues, but just the spacing, of course. And you've got an incredible, um, you know, multi-skilled big man in Joel Embiid uh, who needs that room to operate. And, you know, Ben Simmons, as, as the orchestrator, as the playmaker, you know, and as someone who has not developed his three-point shot yet, you know, uh, it, it's he, he needs guys around him too. So, you know, whether it's – and, you know, he's a guy who's great driving to the basket. So whether you're a slasher or whether you're a player inside, you know, you need that spacing. And so having a, an abundance of three-point shooters around you is important. So, you know, losing, um, you know, a, a couple of key guys in free agency and, and uh, Bellinelli and Ilyasova, you know – Keeping Reddick was all that more important, and then getting Wilson Chandler, who can fill that role. And actually, you know, Wilson Chandler went healthy, and he's had a lot of health issues. But Wilson Chandler went healthy is an upgrade from the two guys they lost because uh, not only can he hit th- that outside shot, but you know he can put the ball on the deck a little bit, and he's a physical defender who can defend multiple positions and is, is a, just a flat out better defender than the guys they lost. 
So uh, I, I think they're in good shape, but you know, I feel like in today's game too, you can never have too much shooting. So that's that trade. What about the uh, draft night trade? Did that surprise you at all, how the 76ers went about things on draft night in the first round? It surprised me to the extent that normally when um, you're a team that has broken through, you, make, you start doing the win-now moves. Right, like right. if they hadn't, if it hadn't been a fifty-two win season, if they'd win, if they'd won forty games and just missed the playoffs or something, um, and they were still in building mode, then you then you say, you know what, we'll take the 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 uh, less poli- uh, the less polished player instead of the more polished player. We'll pick up another asset in a, in a in a draft pick, and we'll keep adding because we don't know exactly what we have yet. But you're a fifty-two win team that made the second round of the playoffs. You'd think that now you want the more polished draft prospect in bridges and that you're not as much about collecting more assets. So it was surprising in that regard. And it was also surprising because the person who was, you know, acting head of basketball operations is the coach and coaches. We we generally associate coaches with being the ones who are the most win now in the organization. So it was surprising in the abstract when you just consider those things. Uh, On the other hand, this is an organization I think that, you know, no matter who's been in charge, has been very smart about the about taking a long-term view. That's how they got here. They took a long-term view and said, we got to lose for a while, and we're okay with it because at the end of that, uh, we will have uh, hopefully a lot better talent. And the long view, you know, leads you to making moves like, hey, let's, let's take the less polished prospect with the higher ceiling um, in, in a trade and pick up a draft pick. Uh, a, a really good draft pick potentially um, in the deal. I, 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 I like it. I mean, I, I like the deal for that reason um, because it's, it's, it's good to recognize that no matter where you think you are, no matter how many high level pieces you may think you have and how much talent you, oh, we're, we're there 52 win team. We're there. We just got to add around the edges. Well, no, look, if you've got a chance to get another uh, high ceiling player and a draft pick, um, it, it's it's a good way to go. Uh, would Bridges have helped more this poss- coming season? Possibly. But, you know, I would also say this. Even the best rookies, and I, I say this, you know, this is the worst time to make this point, but even the best rookies or best rookie prospects rarely contribute on a high-level playoff team as rookies. Um, I cringe as I say it because Donovan Mitchell – and Ben Simmons and Jason Tatum just did. Obviously, Simmons was was you know more a second year player who who was a technical rookie. But in the in the bigger picture, you know, if you go year after year, it, it, that was that was a rarity. That was a huge huge anomaly. Um, in general, in the NBA, it takes guys a couple of years before they become truly productive rotation players, especially for high level playoff teams. So um, I don't know that that Bridges was going to be uh, an impact guy from day one anyway. But, um, but yeah, but there's some risk involved in, in the way they did it. A guy who some people may view as a rookie for this season because he only played in 14 regular season games last year for the 76ers, Markel Fultz. And going back to that roundtable media availability with Josh Harris, Brett Brown, and my Sixer-centric worldview, I think that was probably the thing that jumped out most for me, that Brett Brown said something, uh, to paraphrase the quote, um, totally optimistic and confident about Fultz and that he's going to have a hell of a year next year. Just how much could that change the outlook, let's say, if we fast-forward a few months and reflect in hindsight on how this offseason went, that the Sixers might have in their midst, and granted there's a lot of what-ifs, someone who could be that 
fit in that slot they're looking for, especially in the backcourt, um, who at one point this time last year, there was a whole lot of promise around him. Yeah, it's it's funny. We all just kind of forget about him now um, because you think about you know you you know who the two foundational pieces are of that team and and you know some good role players around them and you think well you know if Fultz doesn't even exist on this roster you're still pretty confident about the the Sixers' future. Um, it's it's actually a really interesting wild card because if you know if, if a year ago expectations were you know really high or even unreasonably high for what Markel Fultz could be for them. Now there is no expectation at all. Now there are a lot of people around the league who you know have, have just kind of written him off. But my gosh, the guys, <laughs> the kids have been in the league for only a year. And yes, it was a very strange situation, and uh, you know, obviously a, a troubling, difficult year for him. But he was picked number one for a reason, and you know, uh, it's way too soon to just decide. Well, whatever happened last season means that he's that that that's it. He, you know, that's that would be foolish. Um, there's obviously tremendous potential there still. And if he becomes, uh, you know, even just a, a solid starting caliber player uh, who can hit some open shots, handle the ball, take some of the playmaking uh, duties and pressure off of Ben Simmons, that's a plus. If he actually reaches full potential, which is still there somewhere um, as, as a number one overall pick, then they're in phenomenal shape. I mean, my God, you know, what, what if they have, you know, three young all-stars uh, talents just beginning their careers still um, or in the early stages of their careers. So, uh, you know, there's a, there's a still a, a wide, wide range of course of possibilities with Markel Fultz and it's, it's, it's the nice wild card for them. You know, okay. You didn't get LeBron James. Okay. You didn't get Kawhi Leonard, um, but you've got two stars and you may have, you still may have a third one in your midst. It's that is not outside the realm of possibility. 76 are still with some compelling storylines in wrapping all this up, this is kind of an off-the-beaten-path question, but you covered the Los Angeles Lakers back in the late 90s, early 2000s, during the 2000-2001 finals run against the 76ers. Did you ever get a sense from Kobe Bryant what he thought of the city of Philadelphia? I feel like that's always been a really interesting dynamic and relationship, obviously his roots here, but uh, what he thought of the city and what he made of it? Yeah, I mean, look, uh, Kobe had a real affinity for the city of Philadelphia. You know, obviously, you know, uh, came out of Lower Marion High School. And that, you know, the, the places I think that meant the most to him from his youth were, you know, in Italy where he had grown up in part uh, while his father was playing professional ball over there and Philadelphia. And so it was really interesting at that time because Allen Iverson had been you know, he was obviously beloved in Philly and in, in many other places, but he had come to represent what Philly was supposed to be about. You know, um, he, he was a fighter and he was scrappy. And, you know, every conversation about Allen Iverson was all about heart because he was, you know, thriving in the NBA and, and uh, you know, at the size that he was. And Kobe was, you know, especially early in his career, um, viewed very differently you know uh, you know Iverson had all the, the 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 street cred and the toughness and, and Kobe was you know something else the kid from the suburbs I guess and the kid who grew up in Italy and uh the, those those impressions mattered a lot more back then it's kind of funny to think back on it now because I don't think the players I don't think the conversation around players is is is, is like that today but back then this, this huge distinction was drawn in the portraits of these two guys and the way fans uh, perceived them. And Kobe had a huge following, of course. Um, 
but he was he he did not have some of the adulation in those years that Iverson did, and especially in Philadelphia. And I think that hurt Kobe. And uh, you know, and, and he and Iverson as being the same draft class were were natural rivals anyway, and, and played you know essentially the same position. And it, again, weird to think back on it because I think Kobe is. Ultimately, was miles better than Allen Iverson. I think it was clear even at the time, even before all the championships. But they, there was for a long time. I mean, even there was a ten-year anniversary cover of Slam in two thousand six. Ten-year anniversary of their draft, in which Slam did a redraft and called Iverson number one over Kobe, which was ludicrous at the time and even more ludicrous <laughs> now. Um, and all of those things. I mean, I'm not saying the Slam cover itself, but just this perception that that lingered for a long time. Uh, I, I do think bothered Kobe, and you know, look, the, the the moment that stands out the most is not when the, the the Lakers beat the Sixers in the finals. Although I think that was a a hugely important moment for Kobe. Um, it's not that one. It's it's the All Star game that was in Philly, um, maybe a year later. Yeah, that's year right. Before. Yep. Um, and Kobe was MVP, I believe, and booed. Um, that's right. Two thousand two, I think it was. Yeah. So boo- booed in his hometown. Um, and in the all-star game. And uh, again, if I'm recalling correctly, it's been some time, but I, you know, I, I think he teared up when he was interviewed afterward, uh, just because it, it, it really got to him. Great insights from Howard Beck, senior NBA writer at Bleacher Report. He also has a podcast, the full 48. Howard, thanks so much for a few minutes. My pleasure, Brian. Thanks for having me. Always good, especially at a juncture like this, making my way towards August when a lot of free agency and draft-related stuff is in the past, and now we really begin to look forward to the fall and training camp to pick the brain of someone like Howard Beck, who covers the NBA on a national level. We appreciate him taking the time to talk. We appreciate you, as always, taking the time to listen. I think next week there's probably going to be a brief hiatus for the podcast for some vacation time, but uh, keep checking your feed, and definitely by the... Um, end of the first week in August for sure we should be back with at least one new episode enjoy the weekend talk to you next time see ya